Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. In her latest book, Effie Ghazi, a professor of history at the University of Peloponnese, freezes the frame halfway through the 200 years of modern Greek history at the turn between the 19th and the 20th century in order to focus on a group of intellectuals who gave shape to their anti-Western ideas on national identity. In the following episode, we talk to Effie Ghazi about these intellectuals, the battle between ideas of East and West in defining Greekness, the peculiarities of Greece's relation to the West, and the legacy of the debate on Orientalism. This is the Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Jens Oresfa Dimitriou. This episode was recorded in lockdown mode and edited by Stefanos Kostadinidis. Efigazi, welcome to the archipelago. Hello, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here with you. We're happy to. Uh, now, from a long intellectual debate in the humanities that has been going on for decades, we know that conceptualizing ideas like the West or the East is uh, fairly tricky. Uh, how do you understand and make use of these terms as a historian? Um, this is a very complex theme indeed. There has been a long debate. I would say that in the last three or four decades, it particularly focuses around the work of Edward Said. Said's Orientalism has been a seminal work in this uh, particular field, in the ways we conceptualized the East through the West, through Western eyes. But also, it has initiated a variety of um, debates and uh, long research around the issue of the West, too or of the, of the relationship between the East and the West. So I would say that if we look at it through the historical lens, both concepts are historically bound. That means they are co-constitutive, they very much debate, uh, they very, very much depend on the context, on the particularities and on the complexities of each particular historical 
era or historical period. And also they have a variety of meanings and affinities which are either cultural or political but or ideological, but which they can come together within a specific and a particular historical moment. So, so it's a, it's a historical moment that gives these concepts um, a material aspect. Let's say, is, is this uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, but there, in, in these historical moments, there is a cultural identity that can be accurately described as Western. There are various reconceptualizations of a variety of pasts or of a variety of um, historical itineraries, either cultural or intellectual or political, which uh, somehow color and form the meaning of both terms, the East and the West. But in each particular historical moment, they can acquire new meanings. So you have to be very sensitive, I think, to this complex interplay between the past and the present, and also between the relationship between the two concepts, because neither of them is actually uh, isolated from the meanings or the perspectives that the other part of this uh, pair is attributed. Mm -hmm. And how much would you say that uh, this debate was... Um Uh, important in the 19th century, for example, because we, when we talk about Said's work, we talk about a, a means of deconstructing in, in, in a way, uh, these concepts, but they were active as, um, as modes of thinking, uh, from very early on. Um, how big were they in the 19th century from what you've seen? Um. Are you asking me about the Greek case or in in general? In fact, I was, because he, even, I was heading even, for the Greek case, but uh, I'd like mm -hmm. a, gen a more general comment at first. <laughs> well, it, even, even in Said's uh, work, but also in the works that somehow re-elaborate or rethink Said's, Said's work, because this is where we are at the moment. Said's work is more or less, I mean, Orientalism is more or less, not. It, it's not a grand theory, Uh, anymore. It, it, it's more or less a set of perspectives or a heuristic term in order to elaborate on, on the concepts of the East, the Orient and the West. So even in science work, I think that the 19th century is critical in this um, uh, vein because even Said, or, and I, as I said, also scholars who have been working on the concepts of Orientalism, Occidentalism and so on and so forth, They, I think they very much focus on the ways the 19th century played either through colonialism or the disintegration of great empires in the East or the varieties of the, um, and the complexities of uh, the politics of uh, several European uh, powers. So uh, I think uh, lots of scholars have actually emphasized this critical role of the 19th century in the relationship between the East and the West. Mm -hmm. Yes, but this is, still, um, this is still an intellectual debate, the way we're talking about it. I mean, it has the mechanics of colonialism that you described, uh, but still the, these concepts, uh, I, I don't know, are they part of the political discourse of the 19th century, or are they just creations of uh, literary or artistic creations that go into colonialism? Well, firstly, they are also used Uh, they are part of the of various political debates. But even in the case of literary or intellectual constructs, even 
in this particular context, I think they also acquire uh, political meanings. So it is, uh, I, I would say that it is impossible to completely differentiate or exclude literary or <clears throat> intellectual uses from the wider uh, politics of each particular historical era. So I would see this um, uh, different, uh, if you want, um, set of uses as rather interlinked rather than completely um, separate one from the other. Mm -hmm. Now we're pro I'm particularly interested actually in the way this, um, uh, this debate affects the shaping of uh, national identity in Greece uh, during the 19th century. Uh, how does this happen? Is it, is it part of the wider discourse on building the nation? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I would say that it starts even before the, uh, the Greek Revolution, it becomes part and parcel of wider perspectives that have to do with uh, the relationship between the, if you want, the, the formation of a, an independent or the, the vision or the politics of a, um, around the formation of an independent Greece or an independent Greek state and its relation to uh, Europe, which is um, defined uh, mostly as Western, the European powers, the great powers say, of the time, or the great powers, but then it carries on throughout the 19th century. But major, I would say, hegemonic um, ideas about what Greece is very much links to uh, dominant perceptions about the ancient Greek civilization and the classical period in uh, the wider Western European, uh, either political or cultural or intellectual sphere. And uh, on the other hand, there are even debates around the geopolitical position of Greece throughout the 19th century. So if you, for, for instance, if you look at uh, Renéris, who wrote this famous piece, if Greece is uh, east or west uh, in the 40s. That, that's the 1840s. Yes, yes, I'm talking about the, the yes, the, of course, the, the 1840s, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm still um, focusing on the 19th century. So if you look at Renéris, he actually claims in the 40s that Greece belongs to the West, but even Renéris himself, who was a, a very, I would say, at the time, influential uh, intellectual and also uh, entrepreneur, he nuances his position in the 50s, and uh, this is evident, I think, of the complexities of the time. As I said, as I said, these are the concepts in process. They are defined and redefined, shaped and reshaped. So there is a constant, constant debate, I would say, in the 19th century in Greece around the concepts. There might be even other terms that have to do with uh, wider issues like uh, Hellenismos, um, or Aftokratoria, the Empire, and so on and so forth. But there is, I think, a, co a, um, a constant concern. And somehow there is an ambivalence. As I said, it's both complex. It is bound to specific historical moments. It relates to wider cultural or issues or issues of identity. It is also related to the geopolitics of each historical moment. If I may, I would like to make a comment going back to uh, Renéris' case, for instance, where we can actually notice that he nuances his positions in the 50s 
because in the context of the Crimean War and of the uh, reshaping of uh, Greek, ex Greek external policy at the time, it seems that Greece might actually look at the East and not just the West. So I would say that in the case of Greece, but in the case of other nation states or countries as well, but if I if I have to focus on Greece, I would say that it very it is a nuanced relationship, as I said, that it is that is very much related on the particularities of its historical moment. It's actually you speak of this in your latest book, uh, Unknown Country. Uh, you speak about this particular geopolitical position of Greece that it's not a protectorate, it's not a colony, but maybe a strange intermediate form of semi-independent state. I mean, how would you describe how would you describe this relation between Greece and the great powers of the time? What is particular? What's peculiar about it? Well, in my case, I would say that in the in the case of my latest work, but in general, I would say I have to admit that I basically focus on intellectual and cultural debates rather than actual uh, party politics. So, um, from this perspective. I would say that issues around Greece as being a colony is rather uh, problematic or ahistorical. But it is, um, I think, important to explore the very dense relationship between Greece and other great European powers in the course of the 19th century, even earlier, but even, I think, I mean, in the course of uh, uh, ideological and cultural issues beforehand, because th there are many very important themes that um, deserve our attention. For instance, Greece defined as, if you want, the ancestor of um, Western Europe, means that uh, Greece acquires specific characteristics and a position in a hierarchy of civilizations. In the course of colonial politics throughout the 19th century, Greece has this particular position through this perspective, if you want, of hegemonic perceptions and dominant perceptions about the, the role of ancient Greece as a cradle of Western civilization. But on the other hand, Greece itself as a national state is another, I would say, vis-a-vis -vis the perspectives of wider uh, great European powers. Greece is a rather is a much smaller state uh, with a strong national vision, with a strong Redentist movement as well, which has greater aspirations in the Ottoman lands or in uh, uh, the area of the Eastern Mediterranean. So there are constant tensions between what the Greeks think they can achieve or they think they deserve and their national aspirations and also their restrictions of geopolitical balances and interests. And this, in this um, particular context, I would say that either in political or cultural terms, Greece and the West have a rather turbulent relationship, full of ambivalences, tensions and processes of negotiation. You know, since since actually your work is built on this, um, uh, is focused on this imprint of uh, politics on culture and maybe culture on politics, 
uh, in a way. I'm thinking that the, the fact that Greece's political system was born out of, uh, was characterized by parties like the Russian party versus the French party, for example, uh, did this leave um, a, a mode of thinking about politics uh, in the 19th century? Did this uh, make maybe there couldn't be a way that the national identity could find the political expression? As I said, I'm not an expert on party politics and the formation of parties and particular identities, uh, political, I mean, identities around parties. But um, I think we've, we've known from the work of several scholars and experts that uh, even the so-called foreigner parties, the, 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 the parties that came out of the uh, revolution and were functional at the beginning of the 19th century, they were formed around, I would say, a rather realistic uh, idea and perception that Greece has somehow to negotiate its politics around the politics of the great powers of the time. In this, I think in this perspective, this um, parties were formed. On the other hand, we shouldn't exclude local agents. I mean, Greeks in situ, I mean, in the Greek lands, in the Greek state, from the politics of, of the era. Just because they were named after foreign powers, that doesn't mean necessarily that uh, local agents and, I mean, politicians and a wider um, a social body were not involved in this. So, on the other hand, taking up um, your your question, if the if it has left uh, an imprint, the parties that have foreign names gradually faded after the Crimean War, and that was, I think, because of this. If you want rather shocking experience, uh, the Greeks had. Uh, during the Crimean War, when they, they, they couldn't in the 50s, when they couldn't proceed with their national aspirations, and if they, they were even blocked by the great powers, so they gradually faded and they were not fun functional anymore. But perhaps they have left an imprint, not just the, these particular parties, but the constant intervention, uh, if you want, that acquires different varieties and different forms. I mean, a foreign king, if you want. The so-called Vavarokratia, the political presence and the intervention of the Bavarians. The constant intervention of foreign powers in, in, in Greek affairs throughout the 19th century. I think it has left this imprint, not of a colonized, I mean, in actual terms, not of a colonized, state, but perhaps of a state that experiences and the society that experiences the constant interference of foreign powers. Although it should be said that even in this particular trend, even in the 19th century, the Greeks, I mean, if you look at a variety of sources, except the Greeks somehow have this ambivalence towards the great powers. On the one hand, there is several perceptions uh, negative about the intervention of great powers. On the other hand, there is this idea of the classical civilization or the Greeks as descendants of glorious ancestors that comes up again and again. And it becomes some sort of, a, if you want, a cultural or political passport that uh, allows the Greeks to acquire specific, if you want, even superior position within this formation, the Western European formation, vis-a-vis -vis other Balkan peoples or other peoples in the Eastern Mediterranean. 
You know, there's this... Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about this anecdote uh, about Kolokotronis, one of the leaders of the independence, who supposedly stormed the office of Kapodistri as the first head of state to complain that he made the state two friends instead of two Turkey of Turkeys, as uh, Kolokotronis partially wanted. And I'm thinking that uh, this, uh, this debate actually is kind of... Um, I, it's not. It, it doesn't have two similar sides. I mean, two friends might mean that it's um, it's uh, trying to become a modern state in the Western uh, uh, example. Uh, and then Turkey seems to hint at something, some cultural remains of the um, uh, the Ottoman Empire that seemed very significant. Uh, uh, did these actually? Have you find found other examples like this? Of this, could we explain this tension maybe in these terms? First of all, uh, nation building versus the uh, the culture that pre-existed, and have you found other examples leading up to the thinkers that you dealt with, that you studied in your last book? I think there are various examples. As I said, um, I would I would be rather hesitant in homogenizing different perceptions about the West or the East, in, in if you want, in a linear narrative. Because what I've seen from my research is that they, uh, there are uh, many variations and different trajectories and trends. And as I said, these are very much historically bound. They are related to the particularities of a specific historical moment. But if you, um, if we look at the, if you want the, the wider picture, I would say that um, there are major, if you want, trends that we can discern through these specificities or particularities. One major trend is this form of ambivalence, as I said, this kind of um, a- an ambivalent relation to the West that has to do with um, the particularities, if you want, of the Greek historical experience. In, in, in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the Ottoman Empire. Even the legacies or the, the specificities of Eastern Christianity vis-à-vis the, the Catholic uh, and the Protestant uh, world. So this, this form of ambivalence is, I think, evident in the, historical, uh, in the course of historical time. There is, on the other hand, this kind of the difference, if you want, the, the Greek difference creates forms of alienation in cultural or religious terms is um, supplemented, as I said before, by the idea of the Greeks being, if you want, the, the, the ancestors, uh, the, the, the descendants of, of glorious ancestors in the Western imagination, in the Western cultural imagination. So both forms of... Um, alienation, but also rapprochement, create this form of ambivalence. If there is a long trend, I would say that it is this ambivalence, this sort of, that they are somehow different, but not exactly. And my second, my second point would be that throughout the 19th century, and even up to the first decades of the 20th century, Greek national aspirations, Greek national visions, which are known, I think, uh, uh, under the, the umbrella term, the great idea, idea, are very ambitious, and they even tend to envision the creation even of a greater state, national state, even some form of, of the Greek empire. 
exhaust in, 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 a, in a variety of historical moments, they seem to crash with the politics of the, the great powers in, in the East and in the Ottoman Empire. And in this sense, there are various clashes between national, Greek national aspirations and the politics of the, of the great powers. And it, it seems to me that, that in, in certain historical moments, Greeks are either puzzled or they, seem, they don't seem to realize the politics of the great powers. They seem to be rather bitter about the politics of the great powers. Just, I think, because the culture and the political passport of ancient ancestry somehow works as a form of, if you want, a claim, a Greek claim that has to be fulfilled while the others do not understand it. The, the Europeans or the great powers. Now, now I'd like to take us through your last, uh, uh, your, your last book, Unknown Country. Uh, and you begin your study, which is studies uh, a particular brand of anti-Western thought at a specific point in time, the turn of the century, uh, from the 19th to the 20th. And um, there, there's, um, there's actually a strong debate that precedes these intellectuals that you that you study, uh, which is between the supporters of the Katharevusa, the you know this official language that is uh, inspired by ancient Greek, uh, and the Motiki, which is the folk language that resembles everyday speech of the people. Uh, and this has even led to riots. There's a long story behind this. Now. How does this debate lead to discussing foreign influence in the national identity? Yes, uh, that's the, the, the main theme of, of this work, Agnosti Hora. My main point in this work is that um, in the beginning of the 20th century, several voices in the cultural and intellectual fields at the time criticize the the ways the Greeks have conceptualized themselves in the 19th century through Western eyes. And uh, what I mean is that they criticize the overemphasis on classical antiquity, the use of Katharevusa, which is uh, an artificial language that resembles the ancient Greek language. And to their, uh, in their critique, they become very negative, both about the imposition of this Western canon upon the Greek national identity, but also they become very critical about the ways Greeks themselves have internalized, if you wish, in, in, in quoted marks, have internalized and have absorbed uh, Western perspective uh, in a way to create an identity that is acceptable by the West. And this is a very, I think, powerful form of uh, critique that uh, becomes uh, very influential uh, either uh, through a, a negative reaction by other intellectuals or groups or uh, circles of intellectuals, but even in the case of um, negative reactions and uh, heated debates, Debates. What I noticed is that it is a form of critique that um, attracts attention and uh, becomes more and more uh, visible in uh, the course of the first uh, three decades of the 20th century. So it leads to a reorientation gradually, perhaps not 
immediately, gradually, it leads to a reorientation of national cultural politics. Hmm. Now, b before we go in how this, uh, into how this reorientation happens, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the critiques, but because there was one point that seemed very interesting to me, it was uh, about Argiris Eftaliotis, the first intellectual you study. Uh, who is um, a, a cosmopolitan, a, a diasporic Greek living abroad, who is fully immersed in Western thinking. Western, in, it's in air quotes here, but yeah. Uh, and then there is uh, Kostis Palamas, who actually criticizes him, his ideas, his proto-nationalism, his advocation for a true Greek um, uh, culture and identity. Uh, saying that it's, um, this should be built on uh, transnational interaction. And Palamasca, while doing this critique, he has lived all his life in Greece. So it's the cosmopolitan who goes for a nationalist, let's say, uh, view. And then the person who is grounded in the, in the, uh, the landscape of the, who is in situ, as you said earlier, uh, in Greece. And that uh, advocates for transnationalism. How do you see this paradox? How can you explain this? But that's one of the, I think, the most exciting and perhaps interesting aspects, uh, I would say, of, of, of Greek intellectual and cultural life. Uh, not just Eftaliotis, whom I discuss, I think, in this book, but also other uh, voices, other intellectuals, including even Yanopoulos or the Womists, in many ways, they are very cosmopolitan in the sense that they are either educated in various cultural, important at the time, cultural and intellectual centers in, in, in Europe. They are polyglots. They have a very, uh, I think, um, extensive knowledge of intellectual and cultural trends in uh, in uh, the wider European world. So um, I would say that you could we could define them as um, uh, educated cosmopolitans, but that does does not necessarily mean that this form of anti-Western critique they elaborate and develop is uh, contradictory to their cosmopolitanism. On the contrary, my point, my main argument, one of my arguments in the book, is that they drew upon the, their knowledge of um, perspectives, cultural and intellectual trends in uh, the Western Europe. They come across ideas that they can actually uh, reconceptualize and uh, reconsider within the Greek context. And uh, they even use and reuse some of these, uh, if you want, Western ideas in order to develop their own arguments. For instance, the concept of authentic communities, of some, some form of, if you want, indigenous, uh, authentic national identity that is linked to an uh, authentic community that is uh, grounded somehow uh, in a pre-modern uh, world. This is uh, an idea that is not that has not come up just in Eftaliotis's work or in uh, I don't know Dragomis's work. This is uh, a set of ideas actually about the indigenous authenticity of uh, pre-modern communities that is very I would say uh, important in a variety of national discourses in Europe in the late 19th century. 
Yeah, of course, and we know how how important it became in the interwar uh, uh, era as, uh, moder as modernization accelerated in Central Europe. But uh, the strange thing about this, and it has to do with what you mentioned earlier in our conversation about alienation, is that Greece was not uh, France or Germany. It wasn't an industrialized country where modernity was booming. Uh, where did this sense of alienation and uh, the, this aggressive nostalgia for the lost commons come from? Um, that's a very interesting question, actually. If we uh, define modernity according to some rigid uh, canons that have to do with industrialization, the process of urbanization, and uh, modern uh, in specificity of modern, some specific modern institutions and processes, then, well, in that sense, of course, Greece hasn't gone through this particular trajectory in the 19th century. But um, what I have been trying to discuss in my work, and I think that other scholars have been trying to do this, I think, not just my, I wouldn't say that uh, there is anything unique or specifically important in my work, but I think it relates to other works as well. That have to do with the ways that modernity is actually many things. There are different modernities and there is a plethora of modern of processes towards the modern uh, that take part in a variety of contexts uh, throughout the 19th and, of course, the 20th century. So this, the idea of ma multiple modernities and the different trajectories that do not relate to fixed categories, but rather to interlinked political and cultural realities are more important in my work. So I think that Greece has its own modernity. Uh, it is very much a modern national state. And it is within this perspective of multiple modernities, Greece has uh, its specificities, but like any other country uh, or any other, if you want, context, either national or cultural or intellectual.
You know, there are, there are many things that seem contradictory with these uh, thinkers. Uh, I mean, we, one could describe them all three, Eftaliotis, uh, Yanopoulos and Dragoumis, as uh, nationalists. Um, but then you see that um, they all encourage cooperation or even closer bonds at one time or another uh, with the Balkans or the Near East. How, how can we explain this contradiction? Well, nationalism is many things. It is um, a set of like, paradigms uh, and a set of um, perspectives that have many different uh, pathways and uh, strands. In the case of the in the context of my work, not just this work, but other 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 things I've worked on around national ideology uh, in Greece and national politics, I would say that there is this trend of, uh, if you want, a panhellenic nationalism, uh, which also in, might include have might have this set of an inclusion uh, um, inclusive vision, a, a vision that might. Uh, include non-Greek speakers, uh, even uh, having other ethnic uh, identities, uh, which come under the edges of uh, a wider, inclusive uh, Hellenic culture. And uh, in that sense, we can see elements of this, if you want, perspective in perhaps Dragomis' work and uh, politics in the beginning of the 20th century. Actually, this is so one of his, I think, most important characteristics that he defines his Hellenism around this kind of, you know, inclusive vision that might integrate people of a variety of, if you wish, uh, ethnic origins uh, within this kind of, you know, wider vision. But this is one of the national projects. So when we think about national, we should, I think, differentiate the different strands and varieties and projects around nationalisms. Uh, and we should see it as a plural phenomenon rather than a unique ideology that has very static and specific set of characteristics. There is a panhellenic nationalism that works around this kind of uh, integrating other ethnic communities. Before we head on, because there is, a, since you mentioned this uh, strand of uh, this type of nationalism, uh, we get back to that later because there is an interesting legacy to this. But before I ask you, uh, before I ask you about it, there is a question I have about the political leanings of uh, people like Eftaliotis and Dragomis. I mean, they both go through different phases where they are, um, they seem kind of fond of socialism. Of the time, I mean, Eftaliotis studies worker mo workers' movements and thinks Greece's national characterism is ripe for a sort of proto-communism, a collaboratorian communitarianism, maybe. And then Dragumis in his later years fascinated by the Soviet Union. Now, uh, thinking back to these uh, people, uh, were they progressive or conservative by modern standards? <laughs> um, uh... I think you have a very interesting question that I'd rather not answer according to modern standards. That's a, that's a point of historical research. That uh, <laughs> I might be one of the, if you want, uh, uh, peculiarities of the historian. 
But uh, allow me to say that I, I'm rather hesitant to characterize people according to more, I mean, to present standards. And one of my uh, main um, central, if you want, concerns is basically to uh, con understand uh, historical subjects, not according to my standards or according to our present standards, but within the context of their epoch, of their era. And what is interesting in the case of uh, people I work with is that you come across this complexity of, of intellectual uh, uh, processes and of the history of ideas and of the ways the history of ideas has actually many layers, many different uh, strands that come together. So I'd rather not answer to this question because to my mind, it's not important how we define them, but it's rather more important to understand how they conceptualized and articulated their perspectives in their time. I actually had to ask this because it was leading me, uh, as well as with, uh, together with the previous question, uh, it was leading me to this. I mean, I'm thinking of um, a Pasok's election in, the 19, in 1981, and we know now that it was historically significant in a way. It it used to, it seems like it kind of embraces the ambivalence of these thinkers, the way that they both feel at home, but not exactly at home. Uh, with the West as a concept, but they also embrace an affinity with, uh, you know, uh, politicians and the uh, currents from the Middle East or North Africa at the time. Um, do you see this lineage going there? Do you see the thought of uh, Dragumis, for example, extending to this political uh, example? Yes, I do. I do. I must say I do. Although I wouldn't um, uh, subscribe to clear-cut legacies and linear processes in uh, either in politics or in the history of ideas, I think that, as I said, there are major trends that somehow flow throughout the 19th and the 20th century. This sort of ambivalence, uh, this uh, double-bind perception around the relation of the East and the West, of uh, Greece and the Western uh, and Western Europe. So this kind of uh, cultural, religious, or even political ambivalence is evident uh, there. Uh, there are also tensions, I would say, between uh, major national visions, major national aspirations, and the intervention of the European uh, powers or the great powers, but of course there are major differences also. One of them, for instance, has to do with the emergence of the United States uh, in the mid-20th century and the kind of, you know, the new polarizations that came across uh, Greek politics or wider uh, European and non-European politics throughout the second half of the 20th century that have to do with the politics of the United States. That was something that didn't exist before uh, World War II. So there are new, as, as we can see, uh, there are new agents, uh, uh, new players, uh, new powers involved in the uh, wider global uh, po uh, geopolitical landscape. Uh, so, yeah, my, my answer is yes, there are major trends, major uh, legacies, major currents 
that uh, flow throughout the 19th and the 20th century, but there are also, on the other hand, new realities formed around new powers, new agents, and new geopolitical powers, including the United States. Just to make this point clearer, I mean, we have to see the ways, for instance, uh, anti-Americanism, let's say, in Greece, uh, somehow employs some uh, older perspectives around the concept of the West, but also comes up with new arguments in, in the second half of the 20th century. And it's also very characteristic of this, um, the a strand of the patriotic left that you talk about in your book, which is kind of a hybrid between the ideas of, uh, you know, Dragumis and Cold, and Cold War oppositionism, let's say. Uh, I want to ask you this though, speaking of new polarizations, um, there was a strong instrumentalization of being Western. Of the, you know the the idea of being Western in Greek political discourse of the, or over the past decade, was there something in this debate that led you to start this intellectual? I mean, what is their timeliness? I would say um, yes. Um, I became interested in the ways, not about just the ways the discourses or the ideo ideologies of being Western or what the West is in uh, Greek um, cultural politics. I also became interested in the ways anti-Westernism worked and uh, became instrumentalized in, in Greek politics. More or less, I would say my work, I see my work, and not just my work, also other people's, other scholars' work, as an intervention in this sort of form of polarization that basically defines the Greek national politics, uh, the Greek national identity as a form uh, around bipolarities. And my argument in the book is that uh, we have to move further and to move beyond this kind of polarization if we are actually determined to realize the complexities rather than the polarities, the polarization in the course of Greek politics and in the course of the formation of Greek national identity. And that's my point in the book, actually, that even anti-Westernism is a form of reconceptualizing the Greek national identity, of redefining the national, uh, the Greek national identity. So my point is that if you want to understand the process or the historical process, you have to go beyond this kind of uh, polarization. It doesn't work. And on that note, Efikasi, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Thank you very much for your invitation. Thank you.
Thank you. 